Hey everybody out there in podcast land, welcome. This is going to be part two of The Crucible. Um, got about halfway through last week and decided this one wasn't going to be a one episode deal. So here we are for part two. And where we left off, if you didn't catch last week, John Proctor's wife has been arrested for witchcraft. And I'm not going to rehash everything, so you'll have to listen to the last episode, but that's where we are in the story. And John Proctor decides that he is going to sacrifice himself for his wife. He's going to call out and destroy, basically, Abigail Williams, who is a tremendous, I don't know, we'll call her a harpy or something, you know, PC, PG-13. She's an awful person, and she's trying to get his wife killed because she wants... She thinks if Elizabeth is burned as a witch or hung as a witch, that uh, perhaps she'll be able to marry John Proctor, which is insane, but, you know, women and all that. Anyways, so... As the next act of the play opens, we're in a courtroom... I'm not going to go through all of the the dialogue that's going on, but basically the gist of it is there are a lot of people who have been arrested and are now facing trial who are obviously not the same type of people who were originally accused of witchcraft. And you have Rebecca Nurse, you have Elizabeth Proctor, and you have uh, Giles Corey White, wife, uh, Martha Corey. And all of these people are upstanding members of the community. The only thing they all have in common is they are a part of kind of this, well, let's call it, was it what it is, a, a political faction that opposes the Reverend and Putnam and all these people who kind of don't want to be a part of Salem. They want to be they want to make their own community apart from Salem, and Salem does not want that. Uh, again, as I said last week in the intro, all witch hunts are political, and this one is no different. So, Giles is, in the opening of the act, Giles is kind of begging for his, his wife's innocence and arguing with the judges. And it goes on for a while... Proctor shows up to kind of lend his help with Francis Nurse. And there's this back and forth with the judges, which is pretty interesting. I would again I'd tell you to go watch the movie if you're not a if you're not a reader, if you don't want to read the play, the movie is excellent. The movie does a good job of showing kind of the mentality of the judges. And the judges are self-assured of their own righteousness and the righteousness of their cause. But at the same time, as they get deeper and deeper into this and more people are drawn in, you can see as the movie and the play progresses that the judges are starting to question whether or not all of this is on the up and up. But, as you can imagine, as somebody who is in a high position of political authority, if you've already gone down a road, 
and that road leads you into something you can't really turn back on, 99.9% of people who hold any sort of political power are not going to admit that they have been hoodwinked, that they had been duped, that they are wrong. And the judges are like this, especially uh, the main judge in the movie. He is, you can tell as it progresses that he, he starts to come to the understanding that he has been fooled by Abigail and the other girls. But to, to admit that would absolutely destroy him and his credibility and the credibility of the government, which in this case is the Puritan church. And so he is not keen on doing that. But he gives John Proctor a chance, and this plays itself out in a scene where John Proctor finally goes all the way and sacrifices his own standing in the community for the life of his wife. He tells the the judge that Abigail Williams is a harlot, is a, you know, a slut, and that he knows because he has committed adultery with her. And this is a grave sin in this community and Proctor admitting it is beyond the pale it's something that is so terrible most people would not do it and so the judge gives Proctor a chance and he has Proctor and Abigail in the courtroom slash church and he brings in Elizabeth But he tells Proctor and Abigail they must face him and not turn around and not speak and not give any sort of hint as to what's going on. And he calls Elizabeth Proctor in and he asks Elizabeth Proctor some questions. And he asks her why she sent Abigail Williams away from her service from her employment. He asked her if she was lazy. He asked her if uh, she wasn't a good employee, basically. Was, was she not a good helper around the house? And John Proctor had told the judge, and this is what prompted this, he told the judge that his wife, Elizabeth, would never lie. And she would always tell the truth because she is a devout Puritan woman. And so this puts Elizabeth on the spot. Because Elizabeth knows what John did. She knows what Abigail is. But she understands that if she admits to this, if she admits that she knows her husband is an adulterer, and that is why she sent Abigail Williams away. It will absolutely ruin John. It will blow up their entire family. And it will it, it's going to cause a lot of problems. So like the other people who are on trial, she's put in this kind of impossible, impossible position of if she admits to what she knows, uh, 
Her life as she knows it is over, and so is John's life as he knows it. And so she kind of goes in a little soft at first, and she says that she thought because she was sick and because she wasn't really well enough to tend to her wifely duties, she thought that her husband John had taken a fancy to Abigail. And the judge pushes her to elaborate on this and finally asks her if her husband committed adultery with Abigail. And this is kind of, well, not the climax, but we're almost to the climax. Because Elizabeth Proctor does something that she's never done in her life. And she lies. And she says that no... It's just, I thought he might. And he, the judge immediately releases, or doesn't release her, tells Elizabeth to leave, uh, tells Cheever to take her out, because in his mind, this insulates him and protects him from any sort of responsibility, because what John has said has been contradicted by Elizabeth. And immediately, Reverend Hale kind of speaks up and says that you, you know, you can't do this. This that's a very yes. She may have lied, but that's a very natural thing to do. This this trick that you've pulled is wrong. But the judge won't hear any of it. He sends her out, and as she's leaving, John turns around and he explains that he confessed. And I, I don't remember exactly the words, but Elizabeth said something along the lines of, oh my God, because she realizes that what has happened is, is kind of ruined everything because she lied to save her husband when he had already confessed to the thing. Um, they send Elizabeth out. Uh, John Proctor goes into a rage and kind of goes after Abigail and, you know, calls her what she is. And Abigail falls back on what has worked this entire time. And she uh, kind of pretends to be this righteous person who is who is not what she actually is. And the next... The next uh, scene in the movie, I think, is they call in Mary Warren, who works for John Proctor and Elizabeth Proctor. And John, and I may have these scenes mixed up. Uh, It may be Mary Warren before Elizabeth, but I don't remember exactly, so we're going to go with this. They call Mary Warren in, and John tries to get Mary Warren to tell the truth. But Mary Warren is terrified of Abigail, and she's also terrified that Abigail and the other girls will turn against her and call her a witch, and that she will end up uh, dying. So after this big kind of to-do where Abigail and the other girls pretend that Mary Warren is like sending her spirit out upon them, she says that John Proctor is in league with the devil 
and that she wants to be on the side of God, and she basically condemns uh, John Proctor. And this is when John Proctor comes unglued, um, and he he calls out Abigail for what she is. Um, there's this big kind of kerfuffle, let's call it, and the girls run out of the church and they run through the streets and John kind of runs after them and and chases them and they all end up in the ocean, on the beach. And uh, this is where Mary Warren kind of gives her final uh, deal where she says, I, I'm not going to be under your power, John Proctor. I am... I love God, and I'm going to be with God, and you are of the devil. And this sways the judge and the rest of the people that are watching against John Proctor and on the side of Mary and Abigail and the other girls. And the judge, uh, Danforth, says to Proctor, "'Will you confess yourself, be fouled with hell?' Or do you keep this black allegiance yet? What say you? And Proctor is, by this point, completely defeated and insane. And he he turns to Danforth and he says, I say God is dead. And this is a Friedrich Nietzsche quote. And it's we'll talk about it here in a second. But of course, this kind of is the the hammer in John Proctor's coffin because he makes this proclamation of God is dead and this is something that fires everyone up because this is blasphemy in the Puritan religion, of course. And this is... uh, Proctor kind of loses his mind for a second and he says that... uh, I hear the boot of Lucifer, I see his filthy face, and it is my face, and yours, Danforth. For them that quail to bring men out of ignorance, as I have quailed, and you quail now, when you know all your black hearts, that is to be fraud. God damns our kind especially, and we will burn, we will burn together. And John Proctor is making this proclamation that he he believes that he is unredeemable, and he believes that he will go to hell. But he also believes that Danforth knows this is all ridiculous, but he's going along with it anyway, and he's telling Danforth that because he is going along with this, and he knows that what he's doing is wrong, that he will burn in hell alongside John Proctor. Danforth takes him into custody, John Proctor is thrown is kind of gathered up by the authorities and John Proctor says you are pulling down heaven and you're raising up a whore and this is his last kind of line of the scene before the curtain falls and it is this this statement to Danforth that you you are not doing God's work you are doing the work of one vengeful, evil woman who is Abigail. And uh, it's a big climax. This is the the climax of the the movie, the, the play, where, where John Proctor tells you 
this famous line, God is dead. And I always used to tell my students, and we'll go into this now, that uh, we read these stories, we read these great plays, not just for what they are, not for the stories, but we're reading about the ideas. And all of these stories are meant to teach you lessons and give you wisdom. And uh, there are a few times in literature where this is exceedingly true and brilliant, and this is one of them. Because this God is dead quote uh, by Friedrich Nietzsche is something that has been kind of taken over and co-opted by pop culture for a really long time by kind of the, the atheist movement as this sort of hooray, God is dead, and us, the humans, are in charge, and there's no higher power than us, humanity. And that's not really what Nietzsche meant. And I think we talked about this in an earlier episode at some point. Um, so I won't, I won't go into super long detail on it, but we're going to go into a little bit just so you kind of understand where we're going with this. The whole quote that Nietzsche said is actually this it translated. It's something like, uh, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? It's not the greatest of this deed too great for us. We must must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? So what Nietzsche thought was that in this late, because Nietzsche was a late Enlightenment philosopher, and a lot of uh, late Enlightenment philosophers in Europe had moved beyond this idea of God and religion into this kind of what they thought was a post-religious age. And in a lot of ways, he was right on that. Uh, because in the late Enlightenment, atheism had kind of gained a foothold and become more powerful than religion. And you saw this in the French Revolution. The French Revolution was largely influenced by atheism, and it ended with this horrible, terrible uh, shedding of blood in France. So Nietzsche is part of this atheist kind of enlightenment, quote-unquote, during the time, but he comes to this kind of scary realization, and the realization is if you remove God and religion from society, something has to replace God. You can't remove God or the idea of God and morality um, and expect everything to just stay as it is and go on as normal. And what Nietzsche basically thought was it would be very hard to retain morality without God in the way we understand morality, because without God, morality isn't anchored to anything. And he thought that this would cause great bloodshed. And uh, he didn't actually, like, it's not like he thought this was a terrible thing. He just thought that this was what was going to happen and there wasn't really anything to do about it. Um, and he was pretty much right because what 
the thing that came to replace God in a lot of Europe after Nietzsche's death was uh, political philosophies and government, communism, fascism, things like that. And what we learned from that time period is that societies without God begin to worship political ideologies because we see communism becoming a religion and we see fascism, Nazism becoming a kind of state religion that replaces the old kind of traditional religion that we had. And those moral systems that were created for these new religions were absolutely horrifying. And they resulted in in mass genocide in Germany, in Russia, and then later in China and a lot of other Asian countries um, from about 1900 all the way through modern day, really. Um, So Nietzsche was right when he asked, like, who will wipe the blood off of us? Is not the greatness of this deed too great? Now, what does all this have to do with John Proctor? Well, what was Puritanism uh, if not the government? Because it was a religion at the time, but it was also the government of this society we find ourselves in in the play. And why, why were the Puritans kicked out of England in the first place? It was because most people viewed their theology as fundamentally flawed. Uh, and it's kind of why most modern Christians scoff at this old Puritanism. Uh, because old Puritanism focused so much on the law that it pretty much ignored the gospel. And that's what made it such a kind of terrible religion slash government was because it just completely ignored the idea of grace and gospel of the Christian religion. Uh, The idea of all of this is that humans need to be very careful about setting themselves up as the moral authority and deciding for themselves what's right and wrong. Because when we do, the only thing that occurs is horror and violence. Whether it's the communist in the Soviet Union, uh, whether it is Puritans hunting witches in Salem, whether it's the Nazis in Germany, it always ends up in the same way. And like I said in the first episode... All the witch hunts are always political, and they're not really religious. The witch hunts are always humans deciding that they themselves and not God are responsible for deciding morality. The witch witch hunts are always about vengeance and never really about justice. So when John Proctor screams God is dead, this one line in this whole play, this work of literature the meaning of that wisdom of the line of of Nietzsche, the weight of that is massive. And if you don't kind of have any understanding of the background of what Nietzsche was saying, you won't understand John Proctor's proclamation, except like if if you're a Christian and you don't understand any of this, you will kind of... The, the wind will be taken out of your cells completely and you'll start to not like John Proctor because he's given up on his faith. 
And if you are completely a-religious and don't have any ideas on, you don't have any belief in God, it is kind of, you go back to that idea of, well, yeah, he's right, there is no such thing as God. And neither one of those is really the truth of what John Proctor says in this climax of the play. And that's whether or not Arthur Miller even understood it. Um, But John Proctor makes this proclamation, and then we move into the, the later part of the play. And the later part of the play, we'll call it part three, John Proctor receives kind of a salvation. So as this part of the play opens, you have John Proctor in prison, and Elizabeth is in prison, and Rebecca Nurse is in prison, and Martha Corey is in prison, and Giles Corey is in prison, and really the only person that isn't in prison of the the political faction uh, that has been on the outside is Francis Nurse, so half of the characters we talked about in the first part are in prison. And what about the other half? Well, not only are the other half of these characters not in prison, they are... Uh, it, it's worse than they're just not being arrested. They are the ones making it happen. And you have Judge Danforth, who is a part of the court, the Judge Hawthorne, who's a part of the court... And when I say a part of the court, I mean like whether they're judges or they are people who are uh, being called as witness. These are the people who are part of the court. You have Thomas Putnam, Ann Putnam, Reverend Paris, Cheever, Abigail Williams, and all the girls. All of them are a part of the court. So what has happened is these two political factions find themselves on opposite sides. There's not, there's almost no one in the middle. You have all those people who are in the political faction that didn't really like Paris and wanted to remove themselves from Salem and set up a new community outside of the influence of Reverend Paris and Salem. They've all been arrested and accused of witchcraft, and all the people who didn't like them, the Putnams, Reverend Paris, and others, are on the other side persecuting them. And then you have all of the girls who are being used by these older people in the community to persecute their political enemies. Now, the only person who has kind of quit the court is Hale. Reverend Hale, after this, after this scene with John Proctor on the beach and all the people being thrown in prison, Reverend Hale quits and he he tells uh Danforth that he is he doesn't believe that the court is in the right he doesn't believe that what they're doing is is correct and he quits the court and he argues that Elizabeth lied in order uh to save John Proctor and even though he's quit the court Hale is doing everything he can to try to save the lives of the people who are in prison and are condemned to be hanged. And to do this, he goes to Elizabeth. And he tells Elizabeth that it is more right, 
more mortal, more godly, for her to lie and confess to witchcraft than it is for her to die because she is too proud to confess to her to this witchcraft charge, even though he knows and she knows that what she would be saying is a lie. He tells her it would be better to lie than to die for pride because dying for pride would also be a sin. And Elizabeth looks at him very hard and she says that this, I think this is the devil's argument. And she says this because it's pretty obvious that the the people who are accused, they're not dying because they're proud. They're dying for the truth. And Elizabeth believes this. Martha Corey, Rebecca Nurse, all of them believe that if they confess that they are lying, and if they are lying, their souls are in mortal peril. They see themselves as they're going to be martyred, basically, and they're at peace with it because they they are telling the truth, and they refuse to lie to save their own lives. They refuse to deny God and say that they are in league with the devil and sign confessions that they where they say they have written their names in the devil's book. They refuse to do this because they believe they're faithful and they believe that doing so would put their souls in peril. And the only one that's a man apart is John Proctor. And John Proctor is contemplating confession. And it's really important to understand why he's contemplating confession. And it's because John believes that he is not redeemable. John Proctor believes that he's going to hell. He believes that uh, the others might be kind of being martyred, but he believes that uh, being martyred for him would be a lie in itself because he doesn't really think that he's worthy to be a martyr. So John essentially thinks that he is damned if he does, and he's damned if he doesn't. So at the very least, by confessing, John believes he might get to do the only good thing that he can possibly do with the rest of his life, which would be going back home and raising his sons and teaching them to be good godly men because he believes that he's irredeemable, but he might be able to redeem and keep his sons on the straight and narrow path. And there is this really kind of touching scene where they allow John and Elizabeth to speak. And John and her finally and truly reconcile with what has happened in this scene. Because Elizabeth does something that she's truly not done yet. She takes on some of John's sin on herself, and she she tells him that his, his adultery isn't all his fault. She tells him that she was cold, she was distant, and that it is a it's a cold wife who would prompt lechery in the first place. So not all of this is his fault. And this is a very, uh, I don't know, it's a Christian thing to do to take 
sin onto yourself and and admit your own shortcomings. And John and her weep together and kind of forgive one another at this point. And after this scene is where John tells her, uh, I'm thinking of confessing. And he tells her he's thinking of doing this for all the reasons I just said. And Elizabeth tells him, at first she tells him that, like, you're the only one that can make this decision. I'm not going to tell you what to do. It's not my place. And so John screams out to Danforth and the others that he wants his life and he is ready to confess. And they bring him before Judge Danforth and Paris and the others and Hale is there and and everyone's there. And he stands before the judge and he is told to write his name on this piece of paper. He's supposed to write his name on the confession. Write your name in the book. And there's this pause because John Proctor only wants to implicate himself because he only believes that he himself is unredeemable and everybody else is not he should not implicate everyone else in this, you know, witchcraft. And he tells the judge that he never saw anyone else with the devil. Uh, he's not going to implicate anyone else. And Judge Danforth wants more, but John won't give it to him. And Hale, pa- even Paris and everyone else, tell Danforth, just let him sign and be done with it. And they explain that... Uh, a lot of people respect John, and his his confession will be weighty enough that they won't need confessions from the other people. And what they plan to do is they plan to nail John's confession to the door of the church as a sort of victory, and they believe that it's going to discredit everyone else who refused to confess. And finally, in the end... John finds the strength inside him that he did not know he had. And for the sake of his neighbors and his love for his neighbors, he says that he cannot and will not sign. And so I'll read kind of this excerpt from the play where this scene happens, because it is important. And Proctor says... I speak for my own sins. I cannot judge another. I have no tongue for it. Now Hale says, Excellency, it's enough. He confess himself. Let him sign. Let him sign it. Paris, feverishly. It's a great service, sir. It's a weighty name. It will strike the village that Proctor confess. I beg you, let him sign. The sun is up. And Danforth considers this, and then with dissatisfaction... He says, uh, give it to him. And Cheever goes and hands the confession to Proctor. Proctor, after glancing at the confession, you have all witnessed it. It is enough. Danforth, you will not sign it. Proctor, you have all witnessed it. What more is needed? Danforth, do you sport with me? You will sign your name, or it is no confession, mister. 
Paris, praise be to the Lord. Proctor has just finished signing. When Danforth reaches for the fa- paper, but Proctor snatches it up, and with wild terror rising in him and boundless an- anger, Danforth, if you please, sir. Proctor, no. Danforth, as though Proctor did not understand. Mr. Proctor, I must have. No. No, I have signed it. You have seen me. It is done. You have no need for this. Proctor, er, Paris says, Proctor, the village must have proof. Proctor, damn the village. I confess to God, and God has seen my name on this. It is enough. Danforth, no, sir, it is. Proctor, you came to save my soul, did you not hear? I have confessed myself. It is enough. You have not confessed. Proctor, I have confessed myself. Is there no good penitence, but it be public? God does not need my name nailed up on the church. God sees my name. God knows how black my sins are. It is enough. Mr. Proctor, Proctor, you will not use me. I am no Sarah Good or Tituba. I am John Proctor. You will not use me. It is no part of salvation that you should use me. Danforth, I do not wish to. Proctor, I have three children. How may I teach them to walk like men in the world and sold my friends? Danforth, you've not sold your friends. Proctor, beguile me not. I have blackened all of them when I nailed this to the church the very day... They hang for silence. Danforth, Mr. Proctor, I must have legal proof. Proctor, you are the high court. Your word is good enough. Tell them I confessed myself. Say Proctor broke his knees and wept like a woman. Say what you will, but my name I cannot. Danforth, it's the same, is it not, if I report or you sign? Proctor, no, it is not the same. What others say and what did I sign is not the same. Danforth, why, do you mean to deny this confession once you're free? Proctor, I mean to deny nothing. Danforth, then explain to me, Mr. Proctor, why you will not let. Proctor, with a cry of his whole soul, because it is my name, because I cannot have another in my life, because I lie and I sign myself to lies, because I am not worth the dust on your feet of them you hang. How may I live without my name? I have given you my soul. Leave me my name. So, this is a great scene, and in the movie it's very moving. Daniel Day-Lewis does an absolutely amazing job of acting in this scene, because Proctor is explaining that he has, by signing this paper, sold his soul, basically, uh, in order to save his life, that he might save his sons and save his neighbors, which is the the brilliant salvation. The This is why Proctor is the, the Christ literature figure in this story, because he is giving himself for his children and his neighbors. And not just giving his life, he's giving something that he believes is more important. Proctor is giving his soul for others. And uh, 
Danforth, after this, points at the document and he says, is that document a lie? If it's a lie, I will not accept it. And Proctor says, uh, oh, Proctor stands there for a moment and doesn't really say anything and just holds the paper. And Danforth says, you will give me your honest confession or I cannot keep you from the rope. Which way do you go, mister? Uh, and Hale and Paris and everyone are kind of screaming at Proctor, like, save your life. And Hale says, you will hang, you cannot. And then Proctor, with his eyes full of tears, says, I can. And there's your first marvel, that I can. You have made your magic now, for I do think I see some shred of goodness in John Proctor. Not enough to weave a banner with, but wide enough to keep it from such dogs. And Elizabeth, at this point, burst out in tears and terror, and she starts weeping. Um, and John Proctor says, give them no tear. Tears pleasure them. Show honor now. Show them a stony heart and sink them with it. And he kisses her, and he rips up the paper. And this is John Proctor saying that, and he surprises even himself, he decides that he would rather die than give them his name and give them his soul. And everybody's in this, this big kind of uproar about this, and Paris even goes to him and begs him to sign it, because you you see this with Paris. Paris understands that he is very much his own soul is now or and has been, and he's finally just now realizing it that his soul is what is in danger and not John Proctor's. And he begs with Proctor to to sign the paper. And Proctor holds up the paper and he tears it in half and drops it to the ground. And that seals his fate. And that's the end of that scene. And the end of the movie, the next scene, is Proctor and uh, Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse. Uh, and in the play, I think it's more people. But in the movie, it's just those three. They are led up to the gallows. And Elizabeth Proctor is spared for the time being because she is pregnant with John's child. And because she's pregnant, they won't hang her. And John, Martha Corey, and Rebecca Nurse are led up to the scaffold. And nooses are put around their neck. And... As the the guy starts reading out the charges against them for witchcraft, um, Proctor and Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse, they start to repeat the Lord's Prayer. And this is kind of a very interesting, and if you don't understand stuff about witchcraft or about Puritanism or what all was believed here, um, you won't really understand this scene. 
But the fact that Martha and John and Rebecca Nurse are able to recite the Lord's Prayer word for word is undeniable proof that they are not in league with the devil. Because you, if you are in league with the devil in, in the belief here of witchcraft, if you're in league with the devil, you cannot recite the Lord's Prayer. You cannot uh, recite scripture from the Bible. You can't, you can't claim to be a child of God when you're actually a child of the devil. And so, as they finish repeating the Lord's Prayer, all three are hung and all three die on the scaffold. But the death of John Proctor and the death of Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse and the others does not sit well with the community anymore because all the community saw the display of them saying the Lord's Prayer, and everybody pretty much understands now that the entire thing has been a complete farce. And this is the, I mean, this is basically the end of the play. Um, I skipped over a little bit, but uh, the the judges, Hawthorne, are kind of forced to stop the the witch trials, because the entire community rises up against them. And Abigail, who has been kind of their main witness, steals all of Paris's money and disappears and gets on a ship and is never seen again. And so all of the witch trials kind of come crashing down on the heads of the judges and everyone else. And because of John Proctor's sacrifice and the sacrifice of the others, uh, the witch trials are put to an end. And, uh, oh, also Giles Corey died before John Proctor and all that. They tried to get Giles Corey to confess by stacking rocks on him until he confessed, and he refused to confess, so he was crushed to death. And, uh, I don't know, I missed that part. That was before John's sacrifice and everything. But uh, that is the end of the play, and that is the end of the book. And as I said in the first episode, there is so much that you can learn from really good literature, really good plays, even really good films. And this one is one of the better ones. It, it teaches you about the, the political nature of, of witch trials and how a community can commit terrible evil against innocent people as long as it's able to to other them to put them in a separate category to 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 convince themselves of their own righteousness and convince themselves that their enemies are evil because if you do that, if you convince yourself that you are holy and blameless and righteous and that the people who oppose you are evil and in league with the devil, what tends to happen is that it's not the people that you're persecuting that start doing the work of the devil. It is you who start doing the work of the devil. And this has played itself out countless times throughout history 
especially in political ways with with Nazism and and communism and the witch trials and everything. It's it's always political and it's always the side that believes that they are righteous and that they have the righteous authority to to tyrannize the minority whom they disagree with and paint the minority as evil and say that the minority is in league with the devil or or people who are trying to destroy society when usually these people who are othered are people who are not really trying to destroy society. They're people who may be outside society or maybe they are people who are wished who wish to remove themselves from the society that they they find themselves connected to because they view that society as not in alignment with their own beliefs and values and i think i said this the first episode i think this is especially a good subject to cover right now because you see this happening in your own country as we speak and i know i talk a lot of politics on here but the party that is in political power right now is actively persecuting their political enemies openly and actively persecuting their political enemies and when it's people like Donald Trump or Alex Jones or Mike Lindell that the majority of people don't really like, everybody seems to be cool with it. They don't, they think that uh, their opponents deserve it for some reason or their opponents are so bad that, well, it's okay that we're persecuting them because of this. And every single time, this has played itself out in the history of mankind. It it's always ends up on the slippery slope. And you start with your Alex Joneses. And it starts with, oh, we're going to, to destroy Alex Jones because he's a little bit kind of on the fringe. He's a little crazy. The things he says are not only are they things that we really don't like, but... Uh, Maybe they're things that are too outlandish. Um, maybe he's saying things that we think are dangerous. So it's okay if we persecute him and destroy him because he deserves it. But what that always turns into after a while is you go from your Alex Joneses to more and more mainstream type kind of people. And it's it's Alex Jones right now. It's Donald Trump right now. It's it's Mike Lindell, the the my pillow guy right now. But in 2 years, in 6 months, in 5 years, whenever it is, at some point in the future, it's going to be the the kind of more powerful, more mainstream opposition. And instead of your Alex Joneses, next it is your Ben Shapiro's. It is instead of uh, instead of Donald Trump, 
Next, it is your Rand Pauls, your Ted Cruz's. It is people that are opposed to the political, you know, whoever their political opponents are. Um, and maybe they aren't as extreme, quote-unquote, or kind of loud-mouthed as Alex Jones or, or Donald Trump. But once the, once the witch hunters get a taste for blood, they don't stop at your, you know, the fringe people. It always progresses until it's the, the kind of benign, normal opposition people. And it turns into a snowball effect to where it, it doesn't stop in there until there is kind of this this martyrdom of someone who is obviously and openly innocent to whatever whatever the political opponents are claiming uh, against them, but the the political opponents don't care because, like Judge Danforth, by that point, if they're backing off, they're going to look weak or they're going to look silly or they're or it's going to be seen that what they've been doing this whole time is wrong. Or they're like Putnam and they are trying to to gain land from their neighbors. They're trying to capitalize on their neighbor's misfortune in a in an unsavory way. Or they're like Abigail Williams and they're literally just crazy homicidal sociopaths that are actually in league with the devil. So what you always see in these witch hunts is that the people trying to do the persecuting who are accusing the other side of being evil and being in league with the devil, they're always the ones that end up doing the devil's work. And the devil's work is, you know, the Holocaust. The devil's work is uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. The devil's work is the, the French Revolution, where suddenly all these innocent people end up getting caught up in the, in the witch hunts and burned at the stake or hanged because of the, the zealousness of zealotry. I guess you would call it, of the the political opposition. And I think it's important to think about that because this is what you're facing in 2022 America. Uh, if you think I'm over the top or I'm being kind of dramatic, just, you know, give it six months. Give it five years. Give it ten years. We'll see where we're at. We'll see if... Uh, if I was right, if all of the if all of history was right, if all of the great artists of the past were right, or you know, if you were right with with no history and no great artist and and nothing to really back you up, or maybe I'm right with all the backing of history and great art. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Give it five years, give it ten years. All right, we're almost at an hour. That's where I'm gonna cut it off. Uh I'm not sure what I'm going to do next time. It's going to be a surprise. So I'll see you next time on the Capo Podcast for I don't know what. Have a good evening. Thank you for your time.